And so, Lord, thank you for in your wisdom of establishing your church and teaching us to gather regularly that we remind ourselves that we're not alone and that we open your Bible and we receive a word from you and we strengthen ourselves by worship and by singing and through prayer. And Father, we are revitalized and we are strengthened through this weekly practice. And so, Lord, now in these minutes, as we sit quietly in your presence, may it be your message that we receive. Thank you for the appropriateness and the relevance of Scripture, how we find it weekly to just minister and meet our needs and to teach us and to grow us. And so please do your work through your Holy Spirit, through your perfect word, and we'll give you the praise and the honor and the glory in all things. Amen. Well, do you remember our empty box? It's okay if you don't because it's been two and a half years. Do you remember the empty box and what we learned back in Genesis 1.1? In the beginning, what? God created the heavens and the earth. Well, today is a noteworthy day. It is the day that we wrap up our final chapter in the book of Genesis I trust that you have found the lessons of Genesis valuable and encouraging and strengthening in your walk with the Lord. We've learned a lot, haven't we? It started with the empty box. How valuable is it to know that we know from whence we come? We didn't come out of an empty box. Remember what the world teaches? Nothing, nothing plus time equals everything. What a formula for destruction. It makes life meaningless. It means we are purposeless. It means we have no God. And it is in direct contradiction to God's holy word and his revelation to us. I mean, how smart do you have to be to come up with that formula? If you wait long enough, the box will fill up without any outside force. Give me a break. And so I am so thankful that we have Genesis in our Bible. And we don't have time to recount all of the lessons, but let's just click off for a minute some of the important foundational truths to the Christian life and to understanding who we are before God that we've learned in Genesis. We have learned, certainly, haven't we, that we have a Creator God. We Not only is He our Creator, but He has created with great design and purpose. And we've learned so many things about his design. We've learned why we are in monogamous, heterosexual marriage. We've learned why we wear clothes. We've learned that work is honorable and of the Lord. We've learned that God has a role for a man and God has a role for a woman. And many important foundational lessons to to everything about how God wants us to live But not only that, we've learned not only is he a creator and that we didn't come from nothing, but we learned that he's a God of expectations. Remember the tree in the garden. Eat from any tree, but don't eat from this one. God has standards. God has, we don't like to say it, rules. He is a God of expectation. Remember the tree? 
Remember the disobedience. Remember the disgrace of the fall as through one man, Adam, sin enters the world and through that man all die. Remember though the proto-evangelium? Remember that that one day the seed of the woman would come and crush the serpent's head? And we were even told ahead that God is a rescuing God. And that God does not leave us alone and the wages of sin is death. And he said you would surely die. But in his grace and his mercy, what did he do? He let them live a little bit longer. Though physical death entered the world and spiritual death, he puts an angel outside the garden gate. You're on your own. And Adam and Eve found out how difficult it was on a cold night to light a fire when you don't have any food and you live probably in a cave somewhere. And so Adam and Eve go from enjoying the beautiful fellowship of our Lord in the cool of the evening with all things provided to living on their own out in the wilderness. And oh, things got difficult, didn't they? And remember how sin impacted the world and Cain kills Abel. And Cain is marked and out he moves and on it goes. And we found out from that that God judges sin. And it didn't take long, did it, until the world is populated and we're in chapter 6 and the stench of the sinfulness of all mankind reaches the nostrils of a holy God and he says, I can stand it no longer. And we learned something about God, didn't we? We learned that he may have patience for generation after generation, but ultimately a generation comes where God says, my wrath is filled up, that is it. And he floods the world with a universal flood, but once again, what does he do? He sends an ark. And in the bowels of the ark live one man, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. And God, we learned, is a God of new beginnings. Aren't you thankful for that? A God of mercy, a God of grace, a God of expectations, a God of judgment, a God of new beginnings. He judges sin, Cain, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah. Ah, but then we started learning about the people through whom God was going to do a work. We go from Adam to Noah to Abraham. He started out Abram lying about his wife, all kinds of nonsense, to Abraham having his name changed. Have you had a new name yet? Do you have a new name in Christ? Are you a child of God? Are the old ways gone and the new ways have come? And then the promised son, and we learned what happens when you muck around on God's will and you try to... You try to take what God wants and turn it and use it inappropriately and you end up with Ishmael instead of Isaac and all of the problems. But we learn that God uses imperfect people. Aren't you glad for that one? And that God uses sinners. And in his grace, he carries out his plan to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, Esau and Jacob, what a mess that was, to Jacob to Joseph. What a beautiful picture of Christ Joseph ends up being, right? And God uses flawed people. Because why? Because God is sovereign. Because God can overrule and God has an end and God is at work. Well, those are some of the lessons that we've We've learned in Genesis, and I hope that they've been very valuable to you, and I hope that you recognize that through the Abrahamic covenant that God is a promise-keeping God. And remember, that was a unilateral covenant, and God uh, keeps His promises, and He blesses those that bless Him. And those promises unfold even today around us. And many of these occurrences and historical events that happened in Genesis are still impacting the, the socio-political uh, field of the day today, aren't they? 
as, as the Arab nations align in a marvelous way right now, we see now God's prophetic plan unfolding. Israel, still the apple of God's eye, still the seed of Abraham. We're going to talk more about that this summer in an end time series that we're going to do all summer long. I hope you'll look forward to that. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 49, shall we? Genesis chapter 49, and we're going to pick up the last few verses of chapter 49, and then we're going to make our way all the way through Genesis 50. And as we go, let's outline the chapter with uh, five simple concepts, okay? Five simple two-word concepts that will help outline our chapter. And we begin in verse 28 of Genesis chapter 49. And remember that, that Jacob is about to die. This is the father of Joseph and of the 12 sons who end up being the 12 tribes of Israel that we see interwoven throughout the entirety of the rest of Scripture, even in the Gospels and in Acts. In the book of Revelation, the 12 tribes now become key players in the future. And Jacob has just spent all of chapter 49 uh, communicating his blessing and sometimes an anti-blessing, sometimes a curse on these sons. And uh, it's kind of interesting stuff. And it says in verse 28, All these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them, giving each the blessing appropriate to him. And then he, that's Jacob, verse 29, gave them these instructions. I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, the cave of the field of Machpelah near Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham bought as a burial place for Ephron, the Hittite, along with the field. And there Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried, and there Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried, and there I buried Leah and the field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. And when Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew up his feet into his bed, he breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. And so number one in our outline of our text today, we see that Jacob dies. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jacob dies with calmness? He's giving instruction. We've talked about the importance of being ready to die in this series, haven't we? We've talked about the importance of having specific instructions to your children and leaving specific instructions to a steward who will carry out your duties, carry out your requests upon your death. But I think it's interesting as Jacob dies that it says he pulled his feet up into his bed. He evidently knew what was going to happen. He knew he was close. And there he is, sitting on the edge of his bed, giving this blessing, giving this instruction. And then the big old man, I suppose, slowly and carefully, perhaps with his sons leaning in with helpful hands, lies back on his bed. They help his feet up under the covers. And Papa breathes his last. I think it's interesting that he says, it says in a testimony of his faith, he was gathered to his people. Where are you going to go when you die? You got people you're going to see? And which people are you going to see? You know, we need to use these moments as reminders, don't we? That everyone has that moment. Everyone has a last breath coming. Don't miss the lesson. So as your children are gathered around your bed, that they can sorrow, as we're going to see in a minute, as Joseph does, grieves, but they will grieve not like those with no hope. They will grieve knowing that you've been gathered to your people, God's people, and you will see them again. 
Even in his testimony of death, there is a lesson about the faith and the belief of the afterlife of the redeemed, isn't there? And of a resurrection of the righteous. He's gathered to his people. Number one in our reading today, Jacob dies. In essence, now, verses 1 through 14 of chapter 15, notice that all of Egypt cries. Number two, Egypt cries. All of Egypt is going to weep. It begins with Joseph. He threw himself upon his father and he wept over him and he kissed him. Do you know that moment? There's no good day to lose your daddy, is there? I'm tempted to talk about my dad right now, but I won't. I'm thankful for him. But there's a lesson here to know that if you still have your dad, you better take good care of him, your mom and your dad, and make sure things are right. Because there's a day when this happens, and you no longer have a day. And now, as Joseph realizes, he's the next generation. He now will become the old man. And so Joseph weeps, but he doesn't weep as those who have no hope. We know from even in Hebrews chapter 11 that both Jacob and Joseph in their dying wanted their bones. And in this text, they wanted their bones buried in Egypt. That's what the boys are going to do right now with Jacob. Why? Because in faith, looking ahead another 250 or 300 years from now, Moses is going to lead the children of Israel back there and they're going to claim the land and they want to be there waiting. They want to be where God promised them he was going to build a nation. That's an act of faith. There is no nation of Israel really at this point. There is no country. It's the land of Canaan. And he wants to be buried with his forefathers so that in future centuries... Future generations, people will say, there's where our fathers are buried, and they believe the promises of God that this was our land and is our land. Joseph threw himself upon his father, and he wept over him, and he kissed him. And then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. You'll remember, if, if you're new with us, Israel is the new name that Jacob received. So Jacob and Israel, same name, of the same guy. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. So Egypt cries. And when the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, My father made me swear an oath and said, I am about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father, and then I will return." Joseph is a faithful son carrying out the requests of his father. So important. Verse 6, Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father and all Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt. Isn't that interesting? And besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household, only their children and their flocks and their herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. And when they reached the threshing floor of Atad near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly. And there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. And when the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why that place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizraim. That means the mourning of the Egyptians. Egypt cries. 
And so Jacob's sons did as he commanded them, and they carried him to the land of Canaan, and they buried him in the cave in the field of Malchpelah near Mamre, which Abraham had bought as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite along with the field. And after burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. What an interesting scene that is, isn't it? And isn't it interesting, um, here Joseph, strategically positioned in Egypt as a dignitary, has personal and private physicians who tend to his needs. And after they grieve a moment there at the bed or for hours, the sons gathered around. It doesn't give us information about the other boys, but it says that Joseph laid on top of his father and kissed his face. They've had 17 good years in Egypt, remember? The first 17 years of their lives, they lived together. Then his brothers betrayed him, which we'll be reminded of here in a moment. And then about 20 couple years goes by and he never sees his father. His father has no idea if he's even alive. And then when Jacob moves down, because of the famine, because of the starvation and the need for food, Joseph is at the pinnacle of power in Egypt and he takes care of his family. And they had 17 more good years together. And Joseph loved his father. And he grieves, and we know that feeling. Didn't God put it in us to be able to grieve? Even believers should cry at one another's funerals, but it's not a hopeless cry, is it? And so then Joseph calls in his personal physicians, and uh, historians tell us that they would go through a process of uh, removing the intestines and the, and the internal organs, and then for, uh, what did it say, 40 days or something like that, then they go through this embalming thing, they would dry them out and treat the body and wrap it, and the body would last then for even to, to today. And uh, you, can find, you can go to the museums and visit these mummies that these physicians of, of Egypt had prepared really now thousands of years ago, and the body is preserved. And he was preserved for one reason, as a testimony of the fact that he wants to go be buried with his fathers. And so they had to treat the body, and so he was treated in a very honorable way. And you notice that all of Egypt, and this is a testimony about Joseph, isn't it? It's a testimony about Joseph that in, in his mourning, evidently, and maybe he had been at his father's bedside for 24, 48 hours, maybe for days, a couple days even, we don't know, maybe he was unshaven, unshowered, and so he doesn't even go to Pharaoh himself, he sends word to Pharaoh, and perhaps the reason is he didn't feel that he was fit and presentable, please send word to Pharaoh that if I can have his blessing, I would love to take my father and fulfill his wishes, And and in testimony to Joseph's standing in Egypt, and this is a second Pharaoh since he first came and interpreted the dreams, Pharaoh says, you the man in Egypt, Joseph. And he sends a huge entourage full of dignitaries, evidently even people to help mourn. And for seven days, once they got there, and so you have, in a sense, almost a precursor of the Exodus as they make their way and cross the Jordan and go up and uh, into the Promised Land. And there they are. So Jacob dies. All of Egypt cries. The next thing that happens is, I think, kind of interesting, and I've entitled it for the outline of our passage, that the brothers lie. The brothers lie. I can't prove it, but let me show you what I think. Verse 15, and when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This sounds concocted to me, does it to you? They started out by saying, 
what if Joseph wants us? This is kind of an interesting dynamic here, and there's some very important lessons that we will conclude from from this passage. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. Joseph had just been at his father's bedside for days, if hours at the least, and his father had been giving him clear instruction. Why didn't Jacob say it himself right there? So it's not in the text, and I can't prove it exegetically, but I am surmising that these brothers are letting the past failures define their present life. Remember that lesson? And they still have a guilty conscience. Let's notice what they do. They write a letter. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive. Okay, so they left these instructions through. And get them. They sent word to Joseph. So either through a courier who gives oral instruction or they send a written word. They send to Joseph. So they're not in his presence personally. In verse 17, it says, This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. I mean, this is almost like sending a note to your teacher saying, you know, Johnny is sick today. Please let him stay home from school. Um, You know, Johnny's mommy signed Johnny almost. You know, it's just, it's an artificial note, I think. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, notice this, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. Boy, that's the, that's the dream even now being fulfilled, isn't it? Remember how the sun and the moon and the stars would bow down? And they hated him for that dream. And there they are, once again, for the third or fourth time, living it out. They came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. What a moment. What a great moment. Jacob dies. Egypt cries. The brothers lie. Joseph cries. That's what it said, didn't it? Joseph wept. I wonder why Joseph wept at that moment. He receives this word and he breaks down crying because his brothers felt the need to send a message to him in their father's hand, perhaps it is a real message. But I don't know why Joseph cried exactly. I wonder if he didn't cry out of disappointment for the fact that what do I have to do to show my brothers that I love them? I've forgiven them. Remember how clear that was in chapter 43? What are they talking about? That's what happens when we root around and we bring up stuff from the past that's all taken care of. But on the other hand, it is possible, and we do not have recorded for us anywhere, that the brothers ever confessed and forsake their sin, do we? We know from their actions and we know from their behavior, primarily Judah representing the brothers, that they were brokenhearted over the sin of the past and that they no longer wanted their father to suffer. They did not want their brother Benjamin to be uh, hurt in any way. They had a total change of heart and they clearly communicated to Joseph even before he, he revealed himself to them. 
they had spoken and he could hear them and they talked about this great sin that they had done against their brother. He knew they were sorry, but had they ever come to him and face to face said, we have committed sin against you. Please forgive us. Remember the lesson we had on forgiveness. Forgiveness is a command. Therefore, it is unilateral. It is a one-way street. We are to forgive as even as Christ God in Christ has forgiven us. I am commanded to forgive a person, but I can only be reconciled. That's bilateral, isn't it? That is a two-way street. Forgiveness is unilateral. It's a one-way street. Reconciliation. And so maybe part of the reason Joseph is crying is that finally, true reconciliation is going to take place. He finally hears them say, I have sinned against you, not just, I'm really, really sorry I hurt you and got caught. There's a difference, isn't there? And so the brothers, quote-unquote, lie, perhaps. Joseph cries over that. And then Joseph dies. Let's finish it out. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. And he lived 110 years. And they saw the third generation of Eph- he saw the third generation of Ephraim's children, also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees, his grandson and great-grandchildren. And then Joseph said to his brothers, "I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land, to the land he promised an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry up my bones from this place. And so Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. And then later, several hundred years later, he is carried out and carried all around the wilderness and finally placed there beside his forefathers. We don't have time to look there right now, but do you know that in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 22, Hebrews 11:22, it says that this was the moment that Joseph's faith was counted unto him as righteousness. That when he declared to his brothers and to the people, you must take my body to the promised land when you go, that is the land of God, that that was a statement of his faith as to the truthfulness of God's word and to the reality of who God was and that God would keep his promise and that they were God's people. Hebrews eleven twenty two. that's the moment that it notices. We notice a couple other things in this short part of the passage as we close out. We notice following the flood and into the era of the patriarchs, that the lifespans are getting shorter, aren't they? Do you remember that Abraham died at 175? Um, uh, Isaac died at 180. Jacob died at 147. And now Joseph dies at 110. And it's getting down, down, down until it is basically established three score and ten, right? About 70 or sometimes 80, 90 years is all we live. And there it is. So Jacob dies, and then Egypt cries, and then the brothers lie, and that makes Joseph cry, and then Joseph himself dies. I want to take just a couple minutes and make a little bit further application on that interesting exchange that happens once again between Joseph and his brothers. And I would like to point it out as the necessary elements for true reconciliation. The necessary elements 
for true reconciliation. Let's begin with the offending party. Let's, let's go back up to verse 16 where it says, So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Listen, whether these words are contrived and made up, and they say, This is what Papa said to say to you, because they're trying to stay on his good side, or whether Jacob really did tell them to say that to Joseph, regardless, the words do serve to expose the heart of the brothers, don't they? They do share their true feelings. And so it is interesting to break it down and to take a look and notice that we now have the dynamics for true reconciliation to take place. Some of you weren't here, but you cannot overstate You cannot overstate the injustice that these brothers had done to Joseph. And that's why, decades later, they are still worried about it. That's why, even after he's kept them alive, built them homes, taken care of them, provided for them in Goshen, the sweet spot of Egypt, cradled in the ark of Egypt, is God's people. And there they are, and they still say, Oh, man, we treated him so badly. All he has to do is snap his fingers and we're done. That's the kind of power Joseph had. So in the message, what are the elements of true reconciliation? Let's begin with the offending party. Number one, notice that you have to speak with clarity. Speak with clarity. What do I mean by this? Notice that they fully acknowledge that their behavior was sin. Notice what it says in verse 17. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers of the sins and the wrongs they are committed in treating you so badly. Now forgive the sins two times. They say it's sin. Listen, if there are two broken relationship parties, two parties in which the relationship is broken and reconciliation is needed, it will never happen until you speak with clarity about your sinfulness. You can't just say, oh man, it was a mistake. I really made a mistake. Yeah, you did make a mistake. And you messed up a lot of people's lives in the meantime. But it has to go farther than that. It has to be, I have sinned against you and against God. And this is spoken with great clarity, isn't it? They acknowledge and take responsibility, even if it's in the second and third person communicated to him, they have acknowledged their sinfulness. Secondly, closely related to that is they accept full responsibility, don't they? They accept full responsibility. No excuses. We have sinned. We have hurt you. And we did it. Listen, you don't shift blame at a time like this. You don't talk about that you should have done this and you should have done that and you made this mistake and, you know, the wind was blowing and the sun was in your eyes. You sinned, man up or woman up, and say, I sinned and I take full responsibility. It's not, but you did this because, and so I did that. Listen, You will answer for yourself to God. You don't answer for other people. You will answer to God, not for other people. And you cannot make other people do anything. And the behavior of other people does not rationalize. It does in our flesh rationalize, but it does not excuse our sinful behavior. And Joseph is a beautiful picture of this. 
No matter how harshly he was treated, no matter how horribly he was treated, he forgives them. He does not make excuse to slam them. Number one, they speak with clarity about their sin. Number two, they accept full responsibility. No blame shifting. If you're writing down your notes, write down Proverbs 28.13. Proverbs 28.13 says, He who confesses and forsakes his sin, to him it will be forgiven. Proverbs 28.13. To him who confesses and forsakes, that person will find forgiveness. Thirdly, notice that Joseph weeps. We've already talked about that. My point here is that you need to allow for deep sensitivity. This is a word to the men in our audience. Allow at a moment like this for deep sensitivity. You have spoken with clarity about your sin. You have taken full responsibility. And then the person standing there bawling. You don't say, I said I was sorry. Why are you crying? You don't say. You don't say. I saw somebody get an elbow just now. I won't say who it is, because I really like to eat at their house, and I want to keep getting invited back. They're sitting right over there, though. What was I talking about? Is it not very emotional, after years of offense and gross sin, to reconcile? Don't you think that's an appropriate time to bawl? And to be emotional, especially the men in our audience, you need to be quiet at a time like that if it's your wife and you've offended her. Fourthly, and maybe even most most importantly of all, in our fourth essential or necessary element for true reconciliation, number four is, notice in verse 18, that there is a heart of genuine humility a heart of genuine humility. Notice what they do. His brothers, verse 18, then come and they throw themselves down before him and they say, we are your slaves. Reminds you of the prodigal son, doesn't it? When he comes back to his father. Father, I have come to my senses and I have, he spoke with clarity, didn't he? I have sinned and I have sinned against you, and I have sinned against God, and then in all humility, the prodigal son says what? May I at least go live in the bunkhouse and be one of your servants, a slave. I'll do anything. And here they are on their face, fulfilling the dream, but more than that, demonstrating a heart of humility. And who does God elevate? The humble. It's the humble. And so there are four essential elements for the offending party in true reconciliation. Speak with clarity about your sinfulness. Accept full responsibility for your behavior. Allow for deep sensitivity on the part of the offended. And number four, you better go bow down with a heart of genuine humility. Notice that the boy's behavior, the brother's behavior, does not belie their words. Don't you know it when somebody's saying the right words, but their body language doesn't match up? I'm really sorry about that. I said I was sorry. Oh, that makes me feel so good. But when you're on your face, right? And you're saying, in all brokenness, let me just be your slave. Let me just be your slave. Now, how do you respond if you're the offended one? That's not easy either. Let's click it off quickly. 
three things for the offended party. Notice that Joseph is a model of Christ-like forgiveness. He is a model of Christ-like forgiveness. And if you are not Christ-like in this, you're going to fail. Because point number one is you must respond with spiritual maturity. You must respond. The offended party must respond with spiritual maturity. Verse 19, but Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? That is spiritual maturity, isn't it? Hey, I am nothing. God is everything. Don't worry about what you've done to me. You've got to worry about what you've done to God. And he responds, not in the flesh. You see, the flesh would say, forget you, man. Just hop on the bus, Gus. Just get out of my life. Get out of my life. But with spiritual maturity, you're always thinking, what about, what about the holiness of God? What about the character of God that has been defamed? What about my relationship with God? What about your relationship with God? Nothing else matters. This life is over in a blink. And so Joseph, number one, responds with spiritual maturity. Secondly, he is confident in God's sovereignty. He is confident in God's sovereignty. Look what he says. This is one of the classic verses in all the book of Genesis. You intended to harm me, verse 20, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Do you remember that point under God's will in Joseph's life that God's will for Joseph had more to do with other people than it did him? There it is, isn't it? Was God sovereign over all these events? Did God know he could get you where he wanted to get you eventually? Say amen, Steve McKenzie. (laughs) Is he sovereign over the affairs of your lives? Yes. Remember, God's sovereignty does not excuse our idiocy, though. You can't wake up in the morning, do stupid, sinful things, and walk down the middle of the highway blindfolded and not expect to get run over by a big truck. Yes, God is sovereign, and yes, God can deliver you. But we're talking about God's people who are focused on God and living out His will in obedience, and He is sovereign. And they can say, as Paul repeats this verse and paraphrases it in Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things will work together for good to them that love Him and are called according to His purpose. And so you can forgive that person because we have a sovereign God and he can take the miserable messes of our lives and he can use them for our own good. And thirdly, notice that Joseph ends by communicating love and kindness with true sincerity. He communicates love and kindness with all sincerity. And Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me? So then, verse 21, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. What a beautiful phrase. Brothers, brothers, do not be afraid of me. I will take care of you and I will take care of your children. And look what it says. And he reassured them and he spoke kindly to them. We now have the foundation laid with sprinkling in some time and trust will be rebuilt and the relationship restored. You know, it occurs to me as we wrap up and get out of here that that's exactly how we approach God, isn't it? The way those brothers approach Joseph is exactly how we should approach God. We have to come and speak with clarity to God, don't we? Have you ever done that? 
God, I have sinned against you. There, I've said it. And God, I take full responsibility. You said don't eat that fruit, and I loved eating it. It's my responsibility. You speak with clarity to God, you take full responsibility to God, and you come before God in all humility, and He forgives. Praise God. You don't deserve it. We don't deserve His grace or His mercy, His love and His faithfulness. But aren't you glad that there's an old rugged cross and there was a substitute lamb who shed his blood for us so that our sinful idiocy could be forgiven before a holy God. Amen? Have you been clear with God? Have you come to God with clarity and admitted your sinfulness? Have you owned up to your responsibility as a sinner and acknowledged that you nailed him to the cross? His son, Jesus. And thirdly, in all humility, have you just received his forgiveness that you don't deserve? He'll give you a new life. It's your only hope, my friend. You're not going to figure out a better way to reorder and reorganize your life. You can't do it. That's where it starts. Let's bow in prayer, please. So, Father, work in our hearts clear our minds Father if there's one here who in a relationship has been deceitful has been ungodly and in our flesh we don't want to admit up to it would you please encourage us challenge that one Lord and may all of us come before you with clarity responsibility and humility And thank you for your great grace through which we have the forgiveness of sin. Bless us as we go our way, Lord. May the Spirit of God use this as fodder to enrich our lives. We commit ourselves to you. Father, take our lives and let them be consecrated alone to you. Thank you for this great book of Genesis and all the lessons we've learned. May they serve us well the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name.